If you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. And we will begin there at verse 1. That's Jonah, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Here once again, God's Word. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down again into it, to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried, Every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, and we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Then they said unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it into land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. And made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word and may he bless it to us tonight. We said last midweek that this is a book that is not a reply to racism or nationalism. This is not an instruction manual on vocations or even on evangelism. Very, very simply, the book of Jonah is a primer on grace. But really, as we come into our text this evening, which is verses 4 to 16, 
we find the lesson doesn't begin in the verdant hill country of Judah. It doesn't begin really at the temple ground where you had all the means of grace surrounding the prophet. No, the real lesson begins at verse 4. The first three verses are about the man's sin. But verse 4, everything begins to change. We've exchanged the, the rolling and the green hills of Judah for the roiling, the turbid seas of the Mediterranean. We're now looking at a storm that is sent out specifically by God. And friend, you can picture this easily. There's a ship that left Joppa without any problem. And all of a sudden the storm comes and the sea begins to heave. And this ship has found itself in the middle of a vast sea and it's like to break under the waves. Like to break through the wind. You can see the frothing waves, the snow-capped mountains that the ship is climbing, being tossed about to and fro. As you're watching this, you can see, of course, the mariners doing what they only know best to do, and that is to lighten the load as best they can. And so they endeavor to use their seamanship to pull them out from the storm. But the text is very clear. The more that they did this, the more the storm heaved. The more the wind blew, the more the mist cut, the more the sea raged. The point of the text is so very clear. No matter what these mariners are doing, they cannot get out. The point of this text at this moment here is that God has sent a storm and none can stay the hand of this God. The mariner's seamanship does them no good. And so they continue to row and they continue to throw things off. And and they continue to save the ship as best they know how. And it becomes, we, we don't know when and we don't know how, but it becomes very evident to them that this is all futile. That's the text that you have here in verse 4. The ship is going to break. And they're going to die. Every wave pushes them on the brink of eternity. Every, every blast of the wind threatens their demise. And this is the point, friend, in which the lesson begins. What's striking about this text is there's this moment. We, we don't know how it begins, but a moment in which the mariners not only come to the realization that the ship is going to be broken, but they realize something else. They see something through the waves, and they see something through the mist, and through the frowning clouds. They see something there that tells them that the one who rules the waves and the wind is the one who sent this. Do you know that? These are mariners, experienced seamen. And all of a sudden they come to the conclusion, not only is the ship going to break, but they need to placate deity. They need to approach the one who is God over the wind and over the waves. The God who is the God of land and of sea. They come to this conclusion, it's a striking one, isn't it? They come to this conclusion that these frothing waves are not simply happenstance. But these things are controlled by some divine power. They come to that conclusion, and so what do they do? Well, these men, under the dim light of nature, they throw themselves before their false gods. And they seek some kind of divine deliverance. But in the backdrop is our prophet. He comes, apparently, as you're looking in the original, he comes apparently above deck in verse 5. Only to return at the end of the verse to go to sleep. Now friend, that word, you ought to understand, that word that concludes verse 5, is not the idea that we often have associated with this part of the story. Jonah doesn't go down to the belly of the ship because he's tired. 
This word fast asleep is a word that's used to describe somebody who has fainted from, from extreme fear. And so that's the way Daniel uses it. He says, when the angel was speaking with him, I was in a deep sleep on my face to the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. He had fainted, the angel pulls him to his feet again. Again, in chapter 10 of Daniel, he says this, I heard the voice of his words, the angel, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was on a deep sleep on my face, my face toward the ground. He fell as dead, like John on Patmos. That's the idea behind Jonah in verse 5. He sees also, like the pagan mariners, he sees through the waves, he sees through the frothing sea, that there is a God who is angry. And it's not the pagan deities invoked by the mariners, it is Jehovah. And so what does he do? Friend, this is a striking thing. He goes to the bottom of the ship and faints. He's stricken by the thought that God is now pursuing him. He fled from the presence of God, but God was not letting go of him. He was seeking him even in the waves and the wind. But friend, if we look through this text, what you have is in the midst of all of this frenzy, a very clear picture that the text has transitioned. We're no longer dealing with the prophet of the first three verses. The primary focus now becomes the mariners on the ship. These supplicating, praying, sacrificing mariners who are entirely dimmed, as it were, from the light of the true God. They become the focus because as you look through the next several lines, all that you have really are their words, their actions, their experiences, and Jonah becomes a secondary character. What focuses the narrator's attention and what's supposed to focus our attention is how these ones respond to this manifest, manifest picture of divine power and anger. I mean, friend, I want you to notice in verse 6, they are the ones who call upon God. And note, they call upon God, they don't faint. There is some sense that there may be some hope that they could placate whatever deity really controls the waves. And then you come down to verse 14. Then they call upon God for mercy. Once they learn who the true God is, notice verse 14, they invoke His name, they call upon Him for mercy, they even acknowledge divine sovereignty. And then in verse 16, once they're delivered, note what they do. They fall upon their knees back to the Lord, they sacrifice to the true God and make vows to the true God, manifestly abandoning their idols. Friend, what's striking about this text is the fact that Jonah is very clearly only in the background. Jonah is invited to make a confession. In fact, he's invited to explain why he's fallen. And note what he says here. It's a striking thing. In verse 10, they ask Jonah, why hast thou done this? And the narrator doesn't give us a reply. Jonah goes mute. What's also striking here is that of all of the people praying in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is not one of them. And what's also striking in this text is the storm came not because of these pagan people who were so willing to sacrifice to false gods. As Jonah himself says, this storm came because of him. It's a striking thing, isn't it? These pagan mariners seem to be pictures of devotion and supplication. And the Israelite on board, the only Israelite in the entire story, is the one who will not confess, will not pray, and is the one who is fleeing God's presence. What we can't miss, friend, at this stage is that you have a very clear picture 
A picture that's going to pervade really all four chapters of Jonah, but one that we can't miss even here. And that is that these mariners, only operating through the light of nature, are shaming a man who ever lived under the light of Scripture. These mariners become a picture of devotion and of quick repentance and willing to go back to God and to vow and to sacrifice to God. And the Israelite in our story is the one who's fleeing the altar of God, fleeing the temple and wants nothing to do with the presence of God. What they're doing with the little light of nature that they have and the little revelation that they've received from the prophet, Jonah has done far less with. The light of nature in this case Shames those who are impenitent, who misuse the light of Scripture. And I want us to consider that under three headings then this evening. First of all, I want us to see how the light of nature urges them to respond specifically to wrath. How it urges them to respond specifically to sin. And then how it urges them to respond to deliverance. And so first of all, friend, how does the light of nature urge these mariners, who again are living lives in paganism up to this point, How does it urge them to respond to this manifest token of divine wrath? Well, friend, I want you to notice that these men are not atheists. There was a flicker, a thought that comes upon them. This storm is something else. Or or maybe not even that this storm is unique. It's just the acknowledgement that he who rules the wind and the waves is there in that moment. They recognize they live in the presence of divine power. They're not atheists. The light of nature told them that there was one divine power that ruled the wind and ruled the waves and maybe they were of the Athenian faith. Maybe they knew that there was this unknown God to them that ruled over all things and perhaps it was He who sent the storm. We don't know that, but perhaps that's the case. At least the Athenians were of that mind. But here, friend, the light of nature told them that there was a God who ruled over the wind that was beating their ship. Who ruled over the waves that was like to crush them and to throw them into death. They had that much knowledge. And they also acknowledged this friend. It's a striking thing. But as they begin to placate their false gods. As they begin to supplicate for some kind of divine deliverance. What's striking is they immediately come to the conclusion. That this divine power who rules all. Is offended. In other words friend. They live in a world in which evil is despised by the one who controls all things. They knew that much. And so they cast lots. The light of nature told them that he who has created all, at least, is a God who despises sin. And then finally, friend, what you find in this text is they also invoke whatever gods they can think of What's striking about that, friend, is they have this conviction that that perhaps is a way of deliverance. Perhaps he who has created all things, who has demonstrated his goodness, as we'll see in a moment, perhaps he also will have mercy. The light of nature teaches this, friend, that the light of nature teaches both sin's consequences and divine goodness. I mean, friend, the scriptures teach us this much. They teach us that the light of nature shows the shamefulness of sin. Remember Paul as he talks to the church at Corinth. It is reported commonly among you that there is fornication. And such fornication, he writes, is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Then, 1 Corinthians 11, 
He goes on to write this, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? How does this concept of shame come? Well, friend, it comes from that idea that we read in Romans 2, in which the Apostle says that the Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The idea that the Apostle is saying there is that in the light of nature, there is still this idea that sin is seen to be sin. Sin is seen to be evil. Yes, the light of nature is murky, but even the mariners understood this much. If one offends deity, if one sins, it's a shameful thing. But friend, it's not even just the shame. As the Apostle writes to us again in Romans chapter 1 now, note what he says about these who only had the light of nature, not the light of Scripture. He says, they knowing the judgment of God, they knowing the judgment of God, and that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Do you see what the Apostle is saying there? He's saying the light of nature not only shows them the shamefulness of sin, but it even shows them that the judgment of God is coming. It shows them that those who commit sin are worthy of death. That's what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 1.32. The light of nature teaches that much. And the mariners learned the lesson. They could see in the wind and in the waves that God was angry. Whatever name they might call Him by, God was angry. And because He was angry, it must manifestly be because there was sin on board. Now friend, what's striking about this text is they also, in all of their dimness that they have, they still have this hope, as we've said before, that there is some kind of deliverance possible. The Apostle Paul, when he's on shipwrecked, speaks to pagans this way. Nevertheless, God left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, Turton goes on to write about that particular text to tell us that even the heathen through the light of nature can discern this much. That because God is so good, perhaps he will also show mercy. No, the light of nature is insufficient to show us Christ. But it can at least give the man this hope that maybe he who rules over all things will be merciful to those who supplicate. The light of nature teaches that, but friend, I want you to notice there's a real contrast in this text. And of course, it's back with Jonah. I want you to notice the rebellion. When the Lord comes to the people of Israel, He asks this. He says this rather, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Friend, which one here on the deck appears most irrational? Jonah knows the true God, he knows the law of God, and yet he is like the ox that does not know his master's crib. He simply does not act like one who has lived under the light of the knowledge of God. Irrational. And then on top of that, friend, even though he has all of the testimonies of Scripture that show God's goodness, Jonah faints instead of prays. He goes below deck instead of supplicating the true God. They call him to pray. He remains mute. A friend, it reminds you, doesn't it, of the people of Israel. They said, there is no hope, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. 
as the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. In vain have I smitten your children, the Lord says. They have received no correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a, like a destroying lion. You see what the prophet Jeremiah is saying there. You have grown so despondent, you don't trust in the goodness of God, you won't repent. You have no interest in actually lodging yourself in faith upon Jehovah. You remember how the writer of Hebrews describes for us what faith is. Without faith, he writes, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, yes, that Jehovah is, but note this, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Which one on the deck in Jonah 1 really looks like the one who is possessing some faith? Who is the one that actually looks like they trust in divine goodness? Strikingly, friend, it's not the only Israelite in our text. It's not Jonah. Instead of praying, he faints. Instead of seeking God, friend, he remains mute. What does this teach us? Well, friend, it teaches us, first of all, that we are to despise our sins, sins committed in the light of Scripture, more than we despise the sins of those committed in the darkness that are without the enlightenment of Scripture. Friend, how culpable is Jonah at this moment? These mariners seem to have some, some knowledge of God, at least in their behavior, that Jonah seems somehow to lack. Jonah refuses to do the very most natural things that even the heathens are engaged in, though they're doing so wrongly. Jonah, who knows the true God, nevertheless acts like, more like a stone, more like a brute beast than he does a man. Friend, what of us? Oh, we look at the world and we look at the sins that are committed by those who lack the light of the gospel. And we lament that such sin is committed by men. But friend, have you thought much? Have you thought much about the idea that your sin and my sin as we commit them under the light of Scripture, friend, shows us that we are even all the more culpable. Our sins all the more heinous. To whom much is given, much is required. But friend, that brings us to our second point. What does the light of nature teach us in response to sin? I want you to notice here that the sailors immediately fall in verse 7 to cast lots. Uh, This could lead to a digression, but you notice here that the light of nature teaches this much. That the use of lots and lot casting is not for recreational purposes, it's for very specific religious purposes. Um, And this is not just for pagans, this is all throughout Old and New Testaments. The light of nature teaches us that much. Because they're invoking the one who rules the lot, the God of Providence. And so what are they doing? They're seeking through the lot to find out the sin that's among them. What's striking, friend, is once they find the sin, as we already read in verse 10, they're the ones who issue the rebuke. Those who had only the light of nature, note what they say to the prophet who has the light of Scripture. Why hast thou done this? And Jonah remains silent. The light of nature accuses sin. 
even in its dimness, even in its murkiness, even these mariners could see Jonah was inexcusable. And finally, friend, it's a striking thing in this text, but as you come to verse 14, not only do they accuse sin, find it inexcusable as they do in verse 10, but in verse 14, know what the mariners do. They're afraid of contracting more guilt. The light of nature teaches them this much. They don't want to contract any further guilt. Sin is something now that they're seeing, is something that's to be shunned, not to be indulged in. What does this teach us? Well, friend, it teaches us, even nature teaches us, that a man must repent. Though it can't teach them that faith in Christ will save, it teaches them this much, that man must flee from sin. And friend, I want you to notice, that's what the Apostle argues for the Corinthian church. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he says in the fifth chapter, that even the Gentiles aren't doing what you're boasting in. He's saying that even the Gentiles would find this thing something that ought to be avoided. Even a light of nature told the Gentiles in Corinth that what you're doing in the churches is absolutely reprehensible. Even the light of nature would tell a man to shun sin. And you see, friend, that's the idea again that you have in Romans 2. When the heir of the apostle says that Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law. He's not talking about a true and a meritorious righteousness. He's talking about a civic righteousness. The sense that as much as they possibly can, the law teaches them this much. They should avoid sin. They should avoid it at all costs. To the point where he goes on again to say that their conscience also bearing witness that their thoughts the meanwhile either accusing or excusing one another. Even the light of nature teaches a pagan that you need to walk more on the side of those things that would not accuse you before conscience and the idea of being mainly before God. And then contrast that with Jonah just for a moment. It's a striking thing. When you come to our text in verse 6, Jonah's commanded to do something that he was commanded to do in verse 2. To arise. The mariners, the ship master rather says, Arise, call upon thy God. And not once do we find Jonah praying. Then again the mariners raise in verse 10 that question, Why hast thou done this? And again Jonah remains mute. You see, friend, Israel and Jonah are not too unlike each other here. The prophet writes in Isaiah 22, In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. You see, friend, it's a striking thing in chapter 1 of Jonah's prophecy. That in this text, you have pagans who are afraid of contracting guilt. Pagans who are accusing sin and leaving it inexcusable. And yet again, the only Israelite on board is mute, prayerless, and is the cause of this wrath. It's a striking thing, isn't it? But friend, what does this teach us? It teaches us this much, that even according to the light of nature, friend, sin is something that is ugly, it is something that is detestable, it is something that ought to be spurned. 
If I could put it this way, friend, the scriptures teach us, and even nature itself teaches us, that sin is not normal, even if it's common. Sin is not normal, even if it's common. It dehumanizes, it malforms, it does not make us more man or more woman. Even the light of nature teaches us that much. And yes, friend, because of our depravity, even the pagans will run into those things that they know are ugly and heinous in themselves. But the point is, the light of nature still holds out this much. Your sin and my sin are things that are not normal, they are reprehensible. They are unnatural. Friend, there are things that are ugly and there are things that deform. They disable. The idea is, is very similar to what you would have in the natural realm. When you look at a bird who should fly but can't. When you look at a creature that is clearly malformed by some other thing. Friend, you see that thing as it's clearly amiss. Something's wrong. Well, friend, when you see man in sin, you are supposed to understand that the light of nature, and especially the light of Scripture, tells you that sin is not to be present. It is ugly. It is dehumanizing. And friend, the mariners, at least in chapter 1, have that much knowledge. It's something that's detestable. Something that leaves a man without excuse. And something they want to stay clear from, as you have in verse 14. Oh, but friend, as you think about this ourselves, think about that moment when the mariners find out that Jonah is a prophet of the Most High God. Oh, decades of sin and decades of idolatry. They were in darkness without any knowledge of Jehovah. They continue to worship stocks and they continue to worship stones. They continue to worship the creature instead of the creator. For decades and for decades this was so. And then suddenly on the ship deck, suddenly they find that there's a prophet of the Most High God. The God who rules land and who rules sea. And then they find out that he flees from God. Friend, can you imagine that question and how heavy laden that question would be with meaning? Why? Why hast thou done that? We, who were pagans from birth and in a land of darkness, we certainly didn't serve God. But we had no knowledge of Him. His Word was not lodged with us. It makes sense that we would worship stocks and stones. But you, who were raised under the light of Scripture, who had the means of grace, who knew Jehovah and who prayed to Him, Why would you flee His ordinances? Why would you deliberately disobey Him? Friend, that's the idea behind chapter 1, verse 10. That's the idea behind the question. Why, they ask, hast thou done this? You who know the true God, why would you rebel? Oh, and friend, that really ought to lay us all bare. How many in hell who were out without Scripture today could rise up and ask us the same question? You who sinned this morning, though you knew what you were doing, friend, have you thought about the countless millions who were without Scripture's light who could stand in hell and argue that you are the worst sinner of them all? Not only were you lost and undone in Adam, and not only did you defy the light of nature, but you defied the light of Scripture. 
after God had been so merciful as to lodge his word among you. Why, asks the mariner, hast thou done this? Because sin is, by nature and by scriptures, like detestable and ugly. But that leads us to our third and our final point. What does the light of nature teach? Now coalescing with the light of scriptural revelation with regard to deliverance. And friend, here you have in verse 16, the focus not on Jonah. Verse 16 shows us that the focus is no longer on the errant prophet. The focus is on the mariners at this moment. At verse 17, Jonah will resurface. But in verse 16, you have the, you have the mariners' responses. They're vowing and they're paying to the Lord. You know what's striking, friend? If you hold this verse in light of what you have in verses Verse 3, the beginning and end of verse 3, where Jonah's fleeing the presence of God, the ordinances of God. He's fleeing those things that God had ordained that were the right context for sacrificing and for vows. Now the mariners are doing the very thing that Jonah fled from. And not fleeing to their idols, but fleeing to Jehovah. And not fleeing to Jehovah simply because they desire mercy. They've already received mercy. They're going to God out of thanksgiving. Friend, as we close, what you have in this text is a picture of how the scriptures show us the right response to deliverance and how even a pagan with very little light of scripture now can make great use of what the Lord gives. In this moment, friend, you have a band of heathens. Mountains, decades of sin. They've lived in darkness. And as the Apostle writes in Romans 1, they've even delighted in it. And now suddenly, by the grace of God, they rejoice in Jehovah who saves Now, friend, nature's light and scripture's light say the same thing. That ought to fill a man with praise and rejoicing. It's a striking thing in this text. But I said at the very onset that this is a book about the grace of God. This is a primer about the grace of God. And friend, the striking thing is Hear the mariners because they have fled to the Lord. Know that grace. Even though there were mountains of sin. Years upon years of rebellion. Ages of darkness. They found the Lord was merciful. And was gracious. To whoever would come to him. In repentance. And faith. It's a primary grace, friend, because it shows us something that's so very basic. The mariners experienced and knew this grace in ways that Jonah's Israel didn't. Have you thought about that? Behind this whole book stands an unrepentant Israel 
whom God has promised to remove the word from if they remain in rebellion, whom God is going to convert the Ninevites to show that if the word of God goes from them and converts others, it's a demonstration that Israel has been left in judgment, not because God is impotent. No, friend, what the text tells us here, in an implicit way, is that in order for you really to know the grace of God aright, you can't be like Israel, and you can't be like Jonah in our text. You must flee to the mercy that is offered. If you are going to be those who take hold of Jehovah and know what His grace actually is, you must take hold of it as it is offered to you in Christ. Friend, we don't know exactly all of the conversations that were had on that ship deck. And it's not our place to speculate. But the mariners knew this much. They had received mercy from the God of gods. And now they owed him their lives. Sacrificing and vows are simply emblems of lives now required to be lived in thanksgiving. Because they knew Grace. Calvin tells us that this whole book, the four chapters of Jonah, are really about one thing. Their purpose is not to teach us about racism or nationalism. Their purpose is not to teach us about vocation and certainly nothing to do with the big fish, really. The purpose is to show Israel in Jonah's day what repentance really is. In other words, friend, to show those who sit under the light of Scripture day in and day out what sin is and the only way to know what grace is. And that is by repentance and by faith. Calvin says this is to stir them up to jealousy when they see Nineveh converted. Why? Because they're supposed to see their own stupidity, their foolishness, and not only transgressing the light of nature, but even transgressing the light of Scripture. God willing, next week we'll take up verses 16 again and also verse 17 as we, continue, as we continue to look at this book, as it shows us the grace of God. Amen.